1994, Brazil played Italy in the FIFA World Cup Final. It was one of the tightest World Cup Finals and the only one in history to be scoreless at the end of regulation. The game was to be decided on penalty kicks. After the first three kickers on both sides, the score was tied 2-2. For the fourth kickers, Italy was blocked, but Brazil did score, putting them ahead by one. The fate of Italy's World Cup chances fell on the shoulders of their fifth and final kicker, Roberto Baggio, a young athlete who was a hero in some of the games leading up to the finals. Baggio lined up for a shot. All of Italy held their breath, and their hearts sank as Baggio sent his shot sailing over the net. Brazil won their fourth World Cup final. This win made Brazil the most dominant team in World Cup history, a statistic they still hold today. After the game, Baggio reportedly locked himself up in his hotel room instead of eating dinner. He fell into a deep depression. His miss cost Italy the title, but also cost his countrymen something a little bit closer to home. Prior to the match, a team of researchers led by James Dabbs at the Georgia State University checked the salivary testosterone levels of the Brazilians and the Italians directly before the game. Minutes after the final score, Dabbs and his team tested the same men again. They found that most of the Brazilians increased their testosterone levels 15 to 35 percent, some as much as 100 percent doubling their testosterone levels. Inversely, every Italian tested had a similar reduction in testosterone, some cutting their T levels in half. But that wasn't the craziest part. The craziest part was that the researchers weren't checking the testosterone levels of the players. They were checking the testosterone levels of the fans. Just by watching the game and presumably emotionally investing in its outcome, the Brazilian and Italian spectators had a significant physiological shift. The recorded phenomenon is known as the winner effect. When a person perceives to have won a meaningful challenge, his or her testosterone and dopamine levels increase. The inverse of this is known as the loser effect. But that's not all. Not only do serum testosterone levels, which is the amount of testosterone in the blood, increase temporarily in response to a perceived victory, but this rise in testosterone stimulates the development of new androgen receptors. Androgen receptors are a part of the nervous system that is stimulated by testosterone or other male hormones. If testosterone is a key that opens a door to a certain effect, then the androgen receptor is the lock. The more androgen receptors you have, the greater the maximum effect of a given amount of testosterone can have on you. What this means is, the more you win, the more motivated you become to win, the better you become at winning, and the more winning is physio-emotionally rewarding. In the words of Dr. Charles Ryan, author of The Virility Paradox, success breeds success at the molecular level. The 1994 World Cup study also tells us something that most of us have already noticed anecdotally. There is a strong correlation between maleness and competition. And the fact that an entire nation of spectators could have such a significant biological shift due to the success or failure of its soccer team suggests that the function of male traits and behaviors is at least related to winning competition. Our neuroendocrine system says so. The History of Man podcast episode zero, The Winner Effect. In our modern culture, where the term masculinity has been abstracted to fit various ideologies, confused with societal roles, and even accused of being entirely a construct, it's important that we start the series with material objectivity. For this reason, our series on the history of masculinity starts with an episode on male biology. This episode, our chapter zero, serves as a prologue on our first volume on a history of violence, but also a foundation for our entire series. The goal of this series is to explore what masculinity is, not how it's come to be. 
not to try to decide what it should or shouldn't be. So we'll start with fundamental assumptions that everyone can agree on. The absolute smallest objective unit of something male is the androgen. Stemming from the Greek word andrea, or man, the androgen is any hormone that regulates the development of male traits and characteristics in vertebrates. There are three natural androgens, testosterone, dehydrotestosterone, or DHT, and androstenedione. But for our purposes, we're going to mostly focus on testosterone, its functions, and how it contributes to form. Therefore, for our purposes, masculinity equals the effects of testosterone in a given human culture. Throughout the series, we'll explore how testosterone's effects and functions have evolved alongside human life. Needless to say, as human life has greatly changed, so has the function of masculinity. We have this molecular system in our body fueled by testosterone that does us quite a bit of good. I mean, it produces masculinity, and I think we could all say that it has done us some good in terms of our evolution and body strength and our ability to, to do certain tasks. But the paradox is that that comes with a cost. That's Dr. Charles Ryan, author of The Virility Paradox, from an interview I did with him in 2018. We're going to hear more from him and his work later this episode. What the title of his book reveals is that testosterone and male traits cannot be absolutely labeled good nor bad. These traits have evolved to fulfill certain useful functions. Some of these functions have become less useful in modern life. Some functions, even when most useful, came with a cost. Hence, the paradox of virility. One of the primary functions of testosterone, and therefore masculinity, is winning competition. But why does winning correlate so directly with testosterone? To answer that, we must go all the way to the beginning. Before we explore human masculinity, we must go all the way back to where maleness comes from, to a time before humans or males of any sort existed. Once upon a time, there was nothing. It was good, some sources report. But then, in an infinitesimal instant that we call the Big Bang, there was a lot of something, energy and matter. It formed into stars and planets and other stuff that make up the universe. About 4.5 billion years ago, some of this matter formed into what we now call the Earth. About 3.5 billion years ago, for reasons we do not understand, some matter on Earth, molecules containing carbon, developed the tendency to replicate itself. These molecules would replicate in certain sequences that would sometimes rearrange themselves in each generation of replication. Sequences that preserve themselves over multiple generations are what we call a gene. The gene is the fundamental unit of nature. Some genes attached themselves to each other and replicated together. Genes that worked well together became more prominent. This is a principle that we'll continuously revisit throughout our entire series on warfare. Whenever multiple units are competing for limited survival, those who can cooperate tend to outdo those who don't. These gene conglomerates collected matter around them to create what was essentially a vehicle to house them. These vehicles insulated them against harsh environmental conditions. These survival vehicles are what we call organisms. Organisms needed energy to survive long enough to replicate their genes in another organism. Genes mutated to give their organisms different forms and methods of requiring energy. We call this evolution. Different collections of genes produce different kinds of organisms with different kinds of structures and abilities. Some organisms were better at surviving than others. The ones that were better at surviving replicating passed on these mutations and became more prominent. We call this natural selection. Organisms that maintain roughly the same form and functions over many generations, we call species. Every species had its way of acquiring energy so it could replicate its genes. Some organisms were good at moving. Some organisms were good at absorbing energy from the sun. 
Some species mutate in ways to leach energy off of other host organisms. We call these parasites. This is another principle we'll see consistent in human history. Wherever there are beings with stored resources, there will be other ones who try to steal it away. Host organisms had to mutate in ways to resist the parasites, but parasites also mutated to become better and resist that resistance. Hosts and parasites both became more and more complex without really gaining any ground on each other. This is known as the Red Queen Theory after the Alice Through the Looking Glass character that lives on a land that moves with her, so no matter how fast she runs, she always ends up in the same place. Evolution was driven by what was essentially an arms race between host organisms and parasites. Evolution is always sped up by competition. This is true from single-cell biology all the way up to modern warfare. The more exposure to competition, the faster the evolution. About 1.2 billion years ago, some host species mutated in a way that got a huge leg up on the parasites. Instead of just replicating from one parent to one offspring, some species evolved to combine the genetic data of two different parents. We call this sexual reproduction. Sexual reproduction was superior to asexual reproduction because it can combine the best mutations of each parent. Offspring needed two things from its parents in order to mature. One, a full set of genetic data, and two, a store of energy from which to grow, food. Parent organisms offer this in the form of sex cells or gametes, after the Greek word gamein or marriage. The first sexual species were isogamous. This means there were no males or females. Each parent offered a similar sized gamete, each with half of the genetic data and half of the food that offspring needed to grow. The number of gametes a given parent could produce was limited by how much energy they had available to contribute to food. But then some tricky individuals within some sexual species evolved to contribute less food and eventually no food. This was an effective replication strategy because these individuals could spend their energy making many sex cells with only their genetic data instead of wasting energy contributing food. These sex cells evolved to become more motile, capable of spontaneous movement, so they could reach food-bearing sex cells of another parent organism before others did. These small, modal sex cells we call sperm. This put the less tricky parents in a dilemma. The offspring needed a full serving of food in order to survive, and if the other parent was going to contribute any food, then they had to contribute double the food. This meant spending way more energy in making big, food-bearing sex cells, which meant they couldn't produce as many. These big, expensive, slow-moving, food-rich sex cells we call eggs. Organisms that produce sperm we call males. Organisms that produce eggs we call females. Males succeeded in passing on their genes if their sperm could reach a healthy egg before any other male's sperm could. In other words, win the race at the cellular level. We call this sperm competition. Females succeeded in passing on their genes they could contribute or find the resources to nurture the offspring to maturity and be fertilized by sperm which carry the mutations that were beneficial for future survival and replication. Right here is the original difference between males and females at the most elementary level. For over one billion years, the genes residing in a male organism would only pass on if that male individual was willing to compete and able to win. In 1948, a botanist named Angus John Bateman did an experiment with fruit flies and noticed a bigger spread in the number of offspring of males versus females. The most successful male fruit flies had many offspring, while the least successful had none, whereas the most successful and least successful females had closer to the same number of offspring. This would become known 
as Bateman's principle. The official definition is that, in a given species, males have greater reproductive variants than females. In pop science, this has been reduced to the sometimes controversial economic statement, sperm is cheap, eggs are expensive. Bateman concluded that this is why males tend to be promiscuous and competitive. Since a male can produce unlimited sperm, he is only limited to the number of eggs he can reach. Therefore, his best genetic strategy would be to spend his efforts copulating with as many females as possible. Females, on the other hand, tended to be choosy because they had limited eggs, each of which would only combine with one sperm cell. Therefore, they were better off seeking high-quality sperm, since quantity did them no good. So unlike asexual species, which only evolved in accordance with natural selection, or survival of the fittest, sexual species also evolved in accordance with something called sexual selection. Passing on your genes didn't only come down to being better at surviving, but also combining with a high-quality opposite-sex parent who is also good at surviving. Females of a certain species evolve mechanisms for choosing a good mate. This leads to what is known as good genes hypothesis. Females select males that seem to have genetic advantages that would lead to fitter offspring. Males of these species, who now had to compete over female choice, could not then leave their success to just sperm competition. If his sperm didn't even get a chance to reach her eggs, it didn't matter how fast they could swim. Males of certain species also evolved to compete at the organism level. We call this male-male competition. It's the introduction of what we may recognize as masculine behavior. Strategies for Maximizing Genetic Success as a Male Organism For the sake of accuracy, we should note that in recent years, Bateman's principle has been contested supposedly due to flawed experimental methods. Critics of Bateman's principle bring up species like seahorses, where the males are more involved in offspring rearing, therefore the females are bigger and more aggressive. While it's relatively rare, there are a few species where the males are not the competitive sex and the perceived gender roles are reversed. So a more updated and accurate version of his principle states, whichever sex in a sexual species invests more in the raising of offspring becomes more choosy. Whichever sex invests less becomes more competitive. In other words, nurturing and competition are inversely proportional. The more a given sex invests in nurturing, the less it invests in competition and vice versa. And this trade-off in functional strategies eventually contributed to form. About 900 million years ago, the first multicellular life appeared. Around this time, animals and fungi branched off from their common ancestor. About 530 million years ago, some animals grew backbones and internal skeletons, creating the subphylum that we belong to, the vertebrates. You can imagine now a time-lapse montage of vertebrates evolving through the eons. Water life climbed up onto the land, some took to the sky, some returned to the ocean, all the while, males came up with different ways to compete, females made it with the winners, and certain traits passed on. Throughout this evolution, Bateman's principle was more present in some species than in others. Species where the parental investment was more greatly different between males and females evolved to have greater difference in competitive versus choosy behavior. In vertebrates, we see the first evidence of androgens. Jawless vertebrates, which is mainly fish, produce androcinodione as the male sex hormone. But all jawed vertebrates, on the other hand, produce testosterone as the male sex hormone. Testosterone is a steroid. Steroids are a class of hormones that can pass through cell membranes affecting any and every part of the body and even affect gene expression and structural growth. Steroids function in what researcher John Coates calls archetypal moments, literal life or death instances where all of one's being needs to focus on the task at hand, 
which for most organisms means fighting and mating. Just as genes evolve to create different structures with different abilities for acquiring energy, some species evolve to have structural differences between males and females based on their need for same-sex competition. These structural differences we call sexual dimorphism. Essentially, this means males and females have noticeably different bodies. We call these differences secondary sex characteristics. In species with a large difference in parental investment, and therefore a clearly defined competitive sex and choosy sex, the more competitive sex is the one that develops deviations from their normal survival functions. This means becoming bigger and more aggressive in order to compete with each other. This can also mean developing non-combat related means of being chosen by females, known as ornamentation. The most common example of ornamentation is the peacock's feathers. The peacock's feathers don't increase survival ability. It actually makes it harder to get away from predators. They also require more energy that could otherwise be used for actual survival, such as having a healthy immune system. Therefore, healthy tail feathers are an honest signal to females that the male is a good mating option. A male with beautiful feathers can't possibly be under stress from predators or disease. And in simpler terms, the difference in how males and females of a species look correlates with how much the males spend their energy on competing for mates versus taking care of the offspring. One might wonder why females of any species would tolerate unequal parental investment. In other words, why would they choose a mate whose appearance suggests he's not going to help out with the kids? Sexual dimorphism and the differences in parental investment are likely the result of what's known as sexy son hypothesis. According to sexy son, a female's ideal mate is the one that will produce the most attractive sons. A female is more likely to choose a mate who can attract many females than one who is willing to offer care, territory, or even resources. The reason goes back to Bateman's principle. An attractive son will spread his mother's genes in many more grandchildren than any one healthy daughter. Therefore, females of many species chose males who biologically invested more in being attractive. This led to greater dimorphism, a greater difference in parental investment, and mating style. This is why for most vertebrates, males are the more competitive sex. And this is most true for our order of the evolutionary tree. Around 200 million years ago, some vertebrates began giving live birth. This was the order of mammals. Relative to other animals, mammal females invest a huge amount of energy in the rearing of offspring. Baby mammals are born with a limited ability to fend for themselves and rely on mother's milk for sustenance. Any nursing mother will tell you, milk production takes a huge toll on the female body. Due to this unavoidable investment by mammal females, most mammal species have more competitive and therefore bigger males. As with all sexually dimorphic species, their size discrepancy and structural differences correlate with the amount of parental investment required of each sex parent and their mating style. 90% of mammals are polygynous, one male with many females. The prominence of this statistic is likely due to the huge energy investment of milk production. Females, by necessity, already invest a ton of energy in their young, so males had an evolutionary incentive to spend more of their resources competing. Some mammals, such as elephants, engage in sequential polygyny. The male will impregnate the female, guard her to ensure the birth of his offspring, then move on to the next female. Around mating season, male elephants, known as bulls, will enter a state of super virility known as must, which is Persian for drunk. The bull's testosterone will increase by 60x. His temples secrete a fluid called temperin that will often burn his eyes. When in must, bulls display hyperdominant behaviors such as swinging their heads high, stabbing the ground with their tusks, and attacking anything that's around. 
In combat, bulls and musts almost always defeat bulls not in musts, even when smaller than their opponent. Other mammals, like elephant seals, exhibit harem mating. The male controls territory with many females on it. During mating season, the males, who are also called bulls, arrive on the mating beach first. They compete through making noises and bashing their heads together. By the time the females arrived, the males will have roughly determined who the alphas are, each claiming their own part of the beach. The females will organize themselves into harems up to 50 strong and will flock to a given alpha's territory. Each alpha will often be assisted by a beta male, who in exchange for helping the alpha defend his harem may get to do a little mating once the alpha is done. Harem tenure, however, is relatively short-lived. Since harems are won by fighting, the moment an alpha is past his prime, he is usually deposed by a younger, stronger alpha male. This again is the paradox of virility. Live by the sword, die by the sword. Despite the risks, we can see how polygyny is highly advantageous to winning males. They get a huge amount of opportunity and genetic diversity in their offspring. It's highly disadvantageous to losing males who get scraps at best. And is generally disadvantageous in the long run for a given gene pool since everyone having the same dad can lead to inbreeding. Polygyny's effect on females, however, depend on how you weigh certain factors. Polygyny offers females no genetic diversity, but they do get fit sperm and higher likelihood of sexy sons, which would be future alpha males. They also have to share their resource territory with other females, but they get more than they would if they chose a beta male. They get no parenting help from the male, other than his security when pregnant, and possibly herd security as in the case of harem species. Due to these trade-offs, the rationality of a female to engage in polygyny is described by what ecologist Gordon O'Ryan termed the polygyny threshold. This is the minimum advantage required for a female to choose to be the second mate over another's only mate. For example, let's say a female has a choice between a single male with a small territory or an already coupled male with a bigger territory. If the bigger territory is more than twice the smaller territory, then it's actually more rational to be the second wife since half of the big one gives her more than all of the small one. The polygyny threshold model shows how winner-take-all contests may have evolved in some polygynous species. Polygynous mammals exhibit extreme dimorphism, with males sometimes twice as big as the females. The females have less incentive to waste energy growing in size since they're guaranteed to mate, but the males, on the other hand, must be large in order to win competition and have a chance at mating. About 5% of mammals are socially monogamous. This is common in species where the young are born totally helpless and the parents tend to be vulnerable prey animals themselves, such as rodents. The male and female stay together at least until the offspring can fend for themselves. Extra paracopulations, what us humans might call cheating, are twice as common with monogamous females than with polygynous females. One explanation is that a monogamous female can maximize her reproductive success by getting the best sperm from the most fit male and the best parental support from the most willing male. A polygynous female, on the other hand, already has the best sperm and security from the one alpha male. But even in species that are socially monogamous, the male will still exhibit more competitive behavior to ensure that he isn't raising another male's child, which is known as cuckolding, after the cuckoo bird that lays its eggs in the nests of other birds. Many species of foxes mate monogamously for a given mating season, but the male will guard the female throughout gestation to prevent her from mating with other males. Only after his offspring are born will he do his fatherly duty of collecting food for his mate and his young. Monogamous species show little dimorphism. The males are either the same size or slightly bigger than the females, but tend to display more aggression to defend their mates. Less than a percent of mammals are polyandrous, so one female with many males. 
This rare occurrence happens in species where the parental needs are so high that having another father around is welcome. One example is the tamarind. Unlike most primates whose birth weight is 8% of the mother's body weight, the tamarind offspring are 18% of the mother's body weight. This incredible toll on the mother's energy bleeds out onto the father, who typically is unable himself to provide enough food for his incredibly needy babies. Given the choice of having 100% of no surviving offspring and having 50% of some surviving offspring, the male will usually welcome a second male around to have sexual access to his mate in order to have a helping hand to ensure child survival. Polyandrous species typically show no dimorphism, however, males may react more aggressively to threats. Less than 4% of mammals are some form of promiscuous. Some promiscuous mating styles overlap with others, such as scramble competition polygyny, which happens in environments where the females and resources are impossible to defend. So instead of fighting, the males compete through racing to copulate with as many females as possible. One promiscuous species of note is the spotted hyena. This is one of the few mammal species where the female is larger and more dominant than the male. A biological anomaly, females actually take on male secondary sexual characteristics, such as having a pseudo-penis and scrotum. The female spotted hyenas only care for their own young. Male spotted hyenas are always dominated by females, though high-ranking daughters are known to show mercy to their fathers, even though males offer no parental help and are basically sperm banks for the females. Spotted hyenas have a strong matriarchal structure. Power is determined through aggression of the females and is passed on by genetic lineage. The daughter of a dominant female will automatically outrank all adults subordinate to her mother. Given the high parental investment required for mammals, many species evolved to be social, meaning they have some level of cooperation between adults. The degree of sociality usually correlates with how vulnerable the offspring is. There are four categories of sociality in biology. Solitary but social is a classification for animals that forage on their own but sleep near each other or share a nest for security. The home ranges or active territory of the females usually overlap, but the males do not. Many primates and marine mammals are solitary but social. Communal animals live together, but each cares for its own young. Quasi-social animals are those that live together but support each other in offspring care in some way. Eusocial animals are the most social, with overlapping generations of adults that all care for their young together. Only hive insects are universally considered eusocial, though some argue that humans are eusocial due to our hive-like cities. The degree of sociality is determined by survival benefits to the genes. Just as genes banded together to co-create organisms, individual organisms band together when cooperating as a herd means every individual has a better chance of surviving than if they were on their own. A herd, or social group, can be seen then as a superorganism. They become unified as a survival unit against external forces. But within the survival group, there's still the problem of competition. Every organism seeks to maximize the survival and replication of its own genes. What happens when this conflicts with that of another fellow member of the social group? More specifically, when there isn't enough of a given resource to go around, how do you determine who eats first and who gets to mate with whom? The solution to this problem is perhaps the biological underpinning of all human social dynamics. It's responsible for our class systems, community organizations, and why throughout history some peoples have sought to subjugate others. This is the dominance hierarchy. A dominance hierarchy is a relative ranking of status between organisms of the same social group. In some species, like the spotted hyena or chimpanzees, one's status or rank is inherited from one's parents. But in most mammals, especially for the competitive sex, 
there's an opportunity for upward and downward mobility via male-male competition. As the playoffs do in sports, these competitions determine the ranking for a given period. Acceptance of this ranking allows for a period of stability within the group, kind of like an off-season where the winners can enjoy their champion status, greater access to food, territory, and mating opportunities. Without acceptance of a hierarchy, a group would be torn apart by constant infighting and cease to function as a unit. The hierarchy takes away ambiguity by letting everyone know who gets first dibs. Also, in times of scarcity, it prioritizes the survival of the most fit organisms. For polygynous species, it ensures that the strongest male is well-nourished for his role as protector and that his genes are the ones that pass on to create the strongest offspring. And this even happens at the literal level. Many mammals such as felines, rodents, and even primates will eat their weaker offspring to ensure that the stronger ones survive. This all makes sense from a group level and from the perspective of the high-status individuals. But why would a low-status being accept a position where it may not survive or even pass on its genes? Furthermore, if testosterone drives one to procreate at all costs, why would anyone ever accept the beta male status? This is a fundamental question that feeds into the human social system and ultimately, warfare. We will revisit the sociological experience of haves and have-nots in later episodes. But on a biological level, just as in sports, Nature has a set of referees that ensures that the losers accept the winner's status. Those referees are our hormones, which brings us back to the winner and loser effects. When two males compete and superiority is determined, the more dominant male experiences the surge of testosterone and dopamine enjoyed by the Brazilians in 1994 and winners everywhere. This surge has a dual function. First, it makes it easier for that winner to win again. As in sports, champion status only lasts until the next contest. The alpha male certainly will be challenged again. Testosterone is an anabolic steroid. Anabolic means building up. Anabolic steroids give competitors an advantage by building up muscle, strength reserves, confidence, and aggression. The willingness and ability to get his sperm to the egg first. This also comes with a surge of libido. Given that the battle is either directly or indirectly over mating opportunities, that alpha male ought to indulge in his spoils of war. This has been noted amongst humans who have been in deadly encounters, such as policemen after a firefight. The body breaks into the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, and the parasympathetic nervous system, rest and digest. But it's also called feed and breed. So after a dangerous or stressful event, you're in fight or flight. The backlash is feed and breed. So fire, EMS, police will tell you after they've been in a, a threatening, dangerous, horrendous event, the adrenaline's pumping through their body. They get home. They gorge themselves. And very often, they have some very intense sex. And, and that's how we're wired. That's Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, U.S. Army, retired, in our 2020 interview on my podcast. Grossman is the author of On Killing, The Psychological Cost of Learning to Kill in War and Society, which we'll refer to more in Episode 1. In his book, he shares about the relationship between sex and killing from a Freudian sense. He shares various first-hand soldier accounts of feeling the similarity between the male sexual response and pumping the enemy full of lead. Rape has been historically associated with war, where the winning side often rapes the women of the losing side alongside pillaging their property. Most literature portrays this as a means to humiliate or dehumanize the enemy. Yes, as expressed to the human consciousness, this very well may be. But the root of this impulse is likely hormonal. Rape has been documented to conceive at twice the rate of consensual sex, 6% versus 
which could be due to the fact that one must have extremely high testosterone in order to consider rape, which may correlate with high sperm counts. The insatiable desire for sex due to hormonal spike, and the parasympathetic backlash that Colonel Grossman described, makes a lot of sense from a genetic standpoint. If you just want a deadly battle, you better spread your seed as much as possible before the next one. But typically the winner doesn't need to worry about fighting the same competitor, at least not for a while. His victory is ensured by an internal referee that we call the loser effect. Just as the Italian fans in the 1994 World Cup, the losing competitor experiences a drop in testosterone. This drop takes away his willingness and ability to fight. He will also have a rise in cortisol, the stress hormone. Cortisol is a catabolic steroid. Catabolic means breaking down reserves for immediate use. When flooded with cortisol, the body is assuming it's under attack by a predator or superior foe, so it must get away. Cortisol increases focus and encourages the organism to assess risk. Like Roberto Baggio, a dominated mammal seeks to retreat, hide, and lick his wounds. This is one of the reasons why male-male competition rarely needs to be fatal. Just like pinning in wrestling or tapping out in submission grappling, dominance can be proven and accepted without risking death. Many mammals actually have a submission signal. Rodents such as hamsters throw in the towel by exposing their vulnerable underbelly, a move which is often, but not always, accepted by the aggressor. Testosterone and cortisol not only have opposite effects, they're actually in chemical competition. Both hormones are created by the same raw material, a precursor hormone known as dehydroepiandrosterone, or more commonly, DHEA. You may have seen DHEA in bottles in the pharmacy. It's sometimes marketed as a mood stabilizer because it provides your body the raw material to produce steroid hormones. This means that the more cortisol you produce, the less able you are to produce testosterone. One cannot physiologically feel like a winner and a loser at the same time. The winner and loser effects are biological mechanisms for what is known as the principle of accumulated advantage, commonly referred to as the Matthew effect, from Matthew 25:29 in the Bible, to those who have, all will be given, to those who have not, all will be taken away. This principle states that small advantages can compound over time to become huge advantages later. This principle reveals itself over and over to account for drastic differences in both nature and in human society. For example, in our evolutionary timeline, the very first predators and prey were likely very similar to each other. They may have even been capable of eating each other. The organisms that eventually evolved into predators probably had a very slight size or structural advantage which allowed them to slightly eat more than be eaten, which gave their offspring greater advantages, whereas the slightly smaller organisms had to evolve to get better at getting away. These differences compounded over generations till the two types of creatures became distinctly different species. In economics, we call this the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. A small financial advantage can be amplified generation by generation so that it becomes a huge wealth advantage for one's grandchildren. And throughout our series on warfare, we'll see how this principle of accumulated advantage allows for massive asymmetry between peoples and nations. While the loser effect can ensure one does not try to fight again right after defeat, by itself it cannot ensure social stability. Steroid hormones can determine ranking, but another type of hormone is what has the hierarchy stick together. Oxytocin. Oxytocin is commonly known as a cuddle hormone as it releases during intimate touch. Oxytocin is correlated with what we might call pro-social behavior, laughter with peers, sexual response, empathy for others, perceiving things as cute, caring about children, and even the ability to hear a baby cry. 
It also plays a physiological role in helping with childbirth and milk production for mothers. It also releases during seemingly negative emotions, such as jealousy, envy, and braggadocio. Oxytocin is the hormone of sociality. As testosterone makes one willing and able to fight, oxytocin makes one willing and able to navigate a social group. In a study done on African cyclids by Adam Redden of McMaster University, when injected with a fish version of oxytocin, known as isotocin, male cyclids weren't any less interested in fighting, but they were quicker to show submission signals when dominated. Oxytocin has also been correlated with an increased fear response in various animals and plays a huge role in keeping together dominance hierarchies. A study on voles, a socially monogamous rodent, found that when oxytocin was administered to prepubescent males, they actually became more aggressive towards smaller females, but had no change in aggression towards other males. And a series of studies done by Professor Simone Chamey-Sor shows that when administered oxytocin, both men and women became better at reading social cues. Women became particularly good at identifying friendly relationships, while men became better at identifying potential competitors. Oxytocin makes mammals more aware of relevant feelings. Essentially, oxytocin is the hormone of social order. If we imagine a dominance hierarchy as a pyramid, testosterone and cortisol can determine how steep it is, but oxytocin is what glues it together. In many ways, testosterone and oxytocin are the yang and yin of social behavior. Oxytocin provides somewhat of a check and balance against testosterone, but in a complementary way. And as we'll see through a series on warfare, the development of human culture and society is largely a result of how these dual forces either cooperate or oppose each other. As one would expect, testosterone and oxytocin have various opposing effects on behavior. Testosterone has been shown to reduce empathy and increase utilitarianism, whereas oxytocin increases empathy and decreases utilitarianism. One example can be seen in a recreation of the trolley problem. The trolley problem is an ethical psychological thought experiment where a runaway trolley is headed for a disaster, but a bystander can pull a lever to divert the trolley, saving the passengers, but killing one person who's on the new track. A 2013 recreation of this dilemma in Utrecht found that subjects were more likely to choose to kill one person to save many when they had higher levels of testosterone, whereas they were less likely to kill when they had higher levels of oxytocin. This makes a lot of sense from a genetic perspective. It doesn't make sense to feel empathy when they're in the middle of a zero-sum battle. And as we'll see in human warfare, oxytocin can often get in the way of military efficiency. Conversely, in times of peace, it doesn't make sense to be competitive. One of the times a man's testosterone levels are known to be the lowest is right after his wife has a baby. Here's Dr. Ryan again. For a man to feel differently after his wife has had a baby about things is natural. That's evolution. That's, that's your hormones. And uh, that's to be counterbalanced with what might happen with uh, people when they're changing mates or they're looking for a mate. Their testosterone level is going to be higher. And, um, and the data would suggest that they're more likely to be engaging in different types of behaviors, not just sexual behaviors, but, you know, more aggressive behaviors and things like that. Sometimes testosterone-driven traits are useful. Other times, they're not. I did ask Dr. Ryan if oxytocin and testosterone are in any way in chemical competition, and he said no. You could probably have both high relative to both. In other words, there's nothing in biology that's going to be, if one goes up, the other goes down in exact lockstep. However, some studies on male rats have shown that administered oxytocin does suppress testosterone. But unlike testosterone and cortisol, testosterone and oxytocin don't compete with each other chemically. 
This suggests that one could hypothetically be high in both androgen and oxytocin receptors. This would be someone who is equally interested in fighting as in caring for offspring. So just for fun and understanding, I wanted to game out how testosterone and oxytocin would hypothetically interact. Let's assume that testosterone has one strive for high status at all costs, and oxytocin has one want to belong at all costs. We can then imagine a 2x2 matrix with four types of people who are either high or low in testosterone and oxytocin. The low testosterone, low oxytocin person would be a loner or reluctant follower. This person probably didn't last too long as he neither has the impulse to lead nor to follow. Low testosterone, high oxytocin makes stable followers. These individuals want to be part of the group, but don't really care about being at the top of it. They would happily take the place lower in the hierarchy. And if you don't care who's at the top, then you can spend more of your resources getting along with others. This makes a lot of sense for the non-competitive sex in a sexually dimorphic species for whom competitions provide little benefit. The high testosterone, low oxytocin person is the hostile alpha. He wants to be at the top of the hierarchy and doesn't care about being a part of it otherwise. Therefore, he would fight to win at all costs. Either he became the alpha male or was removed from the group by force. This makes sense for a male in a polygynous species who has everything to gain and less to lose by fighting to the death. Finally, we have the high testosterone, high oxytocin person. This is the friendly alpha. This one has the impulses to be at the top of the hierarchy, but also has the impulse to be a part of the group. If he did make it to the top of the hierarchy, then there would be no conflict. Being at the top means that he's a part of it. However, if he failed to make it to the top, then there would be a conflict between his testosterone impulse to be high status and his oxytocin impulse to belong, unless one of these hormones dropped which is perhaps another function of the loser effect. The loser effect, coupled with the presence of oxytocin, essentially is a hormonal version of, well, if you can't beat them, join them. Testosterone and oxytocin also have opposing effects on health. Unlike testosterone and cortisol, oxytocin is not a steroid. Steroids are needed for high-stakes moments where all of your body needs to do one thing, and that comes with a cost. Even anabolic steroids take some toll on the body. Dr. Charles Ryan titled his book, The Virility Paradox, because of the fact that, while testosterone has many performance benefits, it also comes with a cost mainly against longevity. For example, testosterone reduces immunity. This trade-off makes sense, because if you're surging with testosterone, then you're willing to fight and risk immediate injury for many opportunities, therefore dying from old age probably isn't as big a concern. As mentioned, alpha status is relatively short-lived anyway. Testosterone runs on the strategy of burn bright, burn out quick. Inversely, oxytocin has been found to increase immunity and longevity. In times of peace, your body can multitask. Oxytocin's social abilities are primarily useful during peacetime, so your body can divert resources towards repair, recreation, procreation, and deepening bonds. Security, during peacetime, is ensured by belonging to the herd, not by fighting. Oxytocin has been found to reduce PTSD symptoms in humans as a signal to the brain the war is over, we're amongst friends now. This may be why in most mammalian species, females live longer. This is not only because some males will die from risky behavior to win mates, simply being competition ready will shorten your lifespan. In a sense, testosterone and oxytocin represent two different games or strategies for genetic dominance. There's the volatile game of competing for high status or the more stale game of belonging to the herd. 
A given social organism needs to play a bit of both games to maximize survival and replication of his genes, but it can only be so good at each one. You can imagine an RPG where you have a limited number of skill points to assign to either competitiveness or cooperative longevity. You could evenly distribute them, but it might make sense to favor one over the other depending on how you want to play. Because only the competitive sex really needs to invest in competitive traits. For a typical mammal species, males need testosterone because they need every competitive advantage in order to have a chance of passing on their genes. But the benefits of competition are far lower for females, so they're better off limiting the cost of testosterone and instead diverting their resources for longevity. But the converse is also true. If you already have competitive advantages, you're better off being male, whereas if you don't, you might as well be female. Now, of course, mammals can't choose their sex after birth, but mothers can actually influence the gender of their offspring based on how fit their offspring may be. Which brings us to a controversial theory known as the Trivers-Willard Hypothesis. Proposed in 1973 by Robert Trivers and Dan Willard, the Trivers-Willard Hypothesis roughly states that high-status parents are more likely to have sons, while low-status parents are more likely to have daughters. The official definition is that in a mammal species, where males have greater variance in reproductive success, females will adjust the sex ratio of their offspring based on condition. Condition refers to all the factors that would allow competitive advantages for the offspring. Nutrition, relative size of the mother to other females, her parasite load, status, and the genetic traits of the father. This means that in good condition, a mammal is more likely to have sons and in poor condition, more likely to have daughters. To understand why this is advantageous, we can look at a quantifiable example. Imagine you take a week-long trip to a casino where there are two games, a high-stakes game and a low-stakes game. In the high-stakes game, you could win $10,000, but if you lose, you lose all your gambling money and you can't play anymore. In the low-stakes game, you're guaranteed to win 100, but you can only play once per day. Let's say you can play only one game. Which one do you choose? Well, before you decide, the rational thing to do is to figure out the odds. If you only have a 1% chance at winning the high-stakes game, you'll probably opt for the sure $100 instead. But if you find out your chances are 90%, then maybe you give the high-stakes game a spin. To some degree, this is what mammals do to maximize genetic success via the gender of their offspring. Remember Bateman's principle. Sperm is cheap and eggs are expensive. A strong and sexy son will produce many grandchildren, but a weak son will produce none, while a daughter will produce some offspring every season no matter what. The most prolific human mother in human history, a Russian woman from the 18th century, gave birth to a record 69 children. Whereas Genghis Khan, who we'll speak about more in episode 1, is believed to have sired over 1,000 children and is estimated to be the direct ancestor of over 16 million men today. So if you're a set of genes in a female body and you can guess the competitive odds of your offspring, it makes sense to favor one gender over the other. For example, in red deer, a polygynous species, females have been found to produce far more sons or daughters depending on how much food they get that season. Now, it's not clear exactly what the physical mechanism is. We know that some species, like ducks, are able to manipulate their vaginal tracts so as not to be impregnated during rape. It's possible that female bodies can somehow choose which gender sperm they allow into their egg. Another likely possibility is that the mother's uterus filters out the less favorable sex via miscarriage. We know that up to 50% of human conceptions miscarry. It's believed that this happens when the mother's body recognizes that the offspring will not be viable. 
It's possible that if her body expects less competitive children, she would abort the males, whereas if she expects high-status children, she would abort the females. Various studies have shown that bad weather and fasting by the mother during conception leads to more female babies. Consistent with other animals, human gender ratios are also affected by status. Various studies have shown that billionaires and world leaders are more likely to have sons, figures ranging from 54-65% to male offspring to such high-status individuals. It's important to note that these figures aren't drastic. Billionaires and world leaders still have 35-46% to daughters, but they are statistically significant, meaning it's unlikely these results would occur by chance. Long before any of this scientific knowledge, many cultures have assumed a relationship between having sons and a man's virility. One well-documented historical case is Henry V of England, who went through six wives, blaming the first five for not producing a son. But it's very possible that his weakness as a king had him produce more X-chromosome sperm than Y, and or his wives' bodies, recognizing his weakness, chose female sperm over his male. Prior to the fall of the Russian Empire, Tsar Nicholas was criticized as weak for struggling to produce a son. When he finally did, his son was hemophiliac, furthering the perception of Nicholas's lack of potency. Arguably, this is one of the factors that had the populace lose faith in their czar, leading to the downfall of the monarchy. Many have assumed that the desire to produce a son by various men throughout history has been a product of a fragile male ego, but it's also possible that various cultures somehow intuited a truth revealed later by Trivers Willard. The mother's competitive advantages also affect gender ratios. Jonathan Bazette of Georgia State University conducted a study to check the gender ratios of offspring of female trial lawyers versus female beauty pageant winners. The trial lawyers were inferred to have high testosterone due to their interest and competence in stressful competition, whereas the pageant winners were inferred to have low testosterone due to their high hip-to-waist ratios. And his hypothesis checked out. The trial lawyers had 58% sons to 42% daughters. The beauty pageant winners had twice as many daughters as sons. This latter fact may actually be a more nuanced example of Trivers Willard. In monogamous species, both males and females do compete in some form to be chosen by their best option. A high testosterone woman will produce high testosterone children, which is most competitively beneficial to her sons, therefore she has more sons. However, the beauty pageant winner's best competitive advantage is her estrogen-derived qualities. These qualities will not benefit her sons, but her daughters will likely be able to use the hyperfeminine characteristics to be chosen by higher-status males who, by the logic of a sexy son hypothesis, will give her more attractive grandsons who will produce many great-grandchildren. We can perhaps call this the sexy son or sexy daughter, sexy grandson hypothesis. The more polarizing secondary sexual characteristics one can impart to one's offspring, the more successful that individual's genetic line will be. But this even goes into human parental investment in children. A 2012 study published by the American Journal of Physical Anthropology tracked breastfeeding mothers in northern Kenya. They found that economically sufficient mothers, which were women who had more than enough to eat, tended to breastfeed their sons longer than their daughters. And the milk they produced for their sons had a higher fat concentration. Inversely, poor mothers who did not have adequate nutrition spent more time breastfeeding their daughters and produced better quality milk for daughters than their sons. We can assume that these women weren't consciously thinking about genetic strategy when they favored their sons or their daughters. We can assume they also don't have the ability to consciously produce milk that's more nutritious for one gender offspring or the other. 
This is their bodies making a strategic decision. We have now reached the final link in our evolutionary chain, Homo sapiens. Our first anthropoid or human-like ancestors hit the scene 35 million years ago. These were primates that walked upright and had relatively little body hair compared to other great apes. Only 315,000 years ago do we have evidence of our species, Homo sapiens. As Yuval Noah Harari covers in his book, Sapiens, there are many human species before and concurrent with Homo sapiens. Compared to these other species, such as Neanderthals, our species was much weaker physically. But as our name suggests, Homo sapiens were sapient, or self-aware. This allowed us to communicate with a level of complexity much higher than that of other creatures. We could not only have ideas, those ideas could have sex. Just as sexual species got a leg up on parasites by combining the best genetic mutations, sapient communication allowed for accelerated innovation by combining the best of different ideas. Sapient humans could innovate and coordinate at a level much higher than any other beast. Sapience also allowed us to act independently from our genetically programmed instincts. How our conscious behaviors have developed on top of our instinctive behaviors is the focus of our inquiry into masculinity. But before we consider this part of human culture, let's recap on what we can infer about human nature. Our biology suggests that we evolved to be socially monogamous. Recall that mating style and parenting style correlates with sexual dimorphism. The bigger the size difference, the more competitive the competitive sex is and the less it invests in parenting. Humans are slightly sexually dimorphic, with males larger than females on average, but with a large overlap. Overall, the male-to-female human height ratio is 1.08. This varies country by country, but only slightly, with the lowest ratio being 1.04 in Azerbaijan and the highest being 1.11 in Japan, according to various studies done over the last 20 years. The overall human male-to-female weight ratio is 1.15. This is a statistically significant difference, but quite small compared to other primates. The weight ratios of harem polygynous great apes, such as gorillas and orangutans, is 2.37 and 2.23 respectively. So the males are twice the size of the females. Promiscuous great apes, like bonobos and chimps, are 1.36 and 1.27 respectively. Of all the great apes, humans are the least dimorphic. This suggests that our human ancestors were more monogamous and exhibited less male-male competition than other great apes. We are far more dimorphic than gibbons, a species of lesser apes that pair bond for life. Gibbons show little to no structural dimorphism and only mild behavioral differences between males and females. This all suggests that for humans, like most mammals, males are the more competitive sex, but not by much. Socially monogamous species exhibit some level of female-female competition since pair bonding means that male parental investment is also a scarce resource. More evidence for humans being mostly monogamous is in our reproductive anatomy. Polygynous primates don't need big penises or testes because their competition is all done through fighting. The winner silverback gorilla can get away with his small 2-inch penis and less sperm volume because he has a monopoly in all the wombs. Promiscuous species tend to have way bigger genitalia since they need to displace other sperm and produce a high volume to get to the egg first. Chimpanzees have relatively huge testicles weighing more than a third of their brains, whereas human testes are less than 3% of our brains. Humans do have much larger penises than gorillas, whose phallus, as mentioned, is only about 2 inches, but unlike completely promiscuous species, our penis is relatively simple. 
Most promiscuous species have penises equipped with hooks, ridges, and other complexities designed to outdo other sperm competitors. All human penises have in that regard is a glands that can allow for displacement and scooping out of some competing sperm. But the slight dimorphism may suggest a dual mating strategy based on conditions. Culturally, we know that most societies throughout history have shown some polygyny. Usually, only the highest status males of a given group had multiple mates, whereas the median masses had one mate and the lowest status had none. This is consistent with modern dating stats. Studies done on the dating app Tinder show that 20% of men get 78% of the matches, while the bottom 80% of men are competing for the bottom 22% of women. This is an example of Pareto distribution, commonly known as the A20 rule. A small elite tends to get a vast majority of the resources. Therefore, our pre-conscious ancestors who represent human nature were likely socially monogamous but polygynous when possible. This is consistent with the parental investment required in humans. Human babies are some of the most vulnerable in the world, requiring huge amounts of postnatal energy. Only the highest status males with the biggest surplus of resources could afford to support multiple mates. Most males would have to directly protect and provide their one mate and their offspring to ensure their survival. Which brings us to the question of the role of the human male and masculine traits in the modern world. Many critics of traditional masculinity point to the fact that human life has changed greatly. Men no longer need to fight another to gain mates. In fact, most testosterone-driven behavior is obsolete and even detrimental. Here's Dr. Ryan again. With regards to, to men and their sort of seeking personal improvement and, and personal development, the kind of work that you do, there are these traits that are associated with testosterone and virility and other things that are desirable. But humanity has gotten to the point where too much testosterone can be a, an undesirable trait. And I say this from sort of the evolutionary standpoint as well, because testosterone helped us to get to be strong and fast and good hunters and to suppress our empathy so that we can kill and provide for our villages and for provide for our people. I'm talking about over the course of evolution. And a lot of those traits are kind of gone, like the survival, the survival and strength aspects of testosterone that were needed to keep a society going don't really exist as much anymore. Um, and so now that we live in cities and we, we live in groups and, uh, and really it's about getting together, getting along with other people and, uh, and having empathy and understanding people and not necessarily being physically the strongest so that you can kind of get pushed over the edge by your testosterone a little bit. Everyone can agree that human male competition has changed a lot over the last 10,000 years. And we can see how primal male impulses do lead to undesirable events such as violence. But does that mean testosterone and its impulses are obsolete? Nowadays, very few men need to kill food nor enemies in order for their young to survive. Most of our survival and security needs have been replaced by money. But testosterone, for better or worse, does also show up in the financial world. Former Wall Street derivatives trader turned researcher John Coates conducted various studies on the physiological relationship with risk. In one study, he found that the relative testosterone levels of a given trader could predict that trader's earnings that day. When he had above-average testosterone at 11 a.m., he went on to have above-average profits that afternoon. An article in The Economist covering the study half-joked that managers should test their traders every morning, and if their T levels are lower than usual, they should be sent home. While this was a half-joke, it was more than half-seriously backed by numbers. Coates found that high-testosterone individuals, typically younger men, did have the biggest wins. 
but they also suffer the biggest losses. This is likely because testosterone gives one confidence, and too much confidence can get you into trouble. In his book, The Hour Between Dog and Wolf, Coates actually blames some of the financial bubbles and stock market crashes on high testosterone males inflating prices beyond value based on this overconfidence. He writes that testosterone is the hormone of irrational exuberance. In the financial world, just like in nature, testosterone needs to be balanced out by cortisol. In this way, the loser effect is not just a referee. It's also a coach that tells you when to cut your losses. The swings of testosterone and cortisol are likely the root of what in warfighting is known as morale. Battles have been lost due to the loser effect, but wars have also been won. Coates found that despite having smaller wins, the lower testosterone traders, such as women and older men, outperform high testosterone men in the long run for one simple reason. Lower testosterone individuals know when to call it quits. Here we see consistency of the effect of testosterone on a male's well-being throughout our entire timeline. The extremely high testosterone, low cortisol caveman would likely win certain battles with his strength and bravado, but would also equally be likely to throw himself into a risk that would get himself killed. Similarly, the high testosterone, low cortisol trader or entrepreneur would probably have some bigger wins from his hubris, but that same overconfidence could lead to his bankruptcy. This shows that a quantifiable metric of virility, testosterone in the blood, can directly predict potential reproductive success in modern humans as well. And just as fascinating is the relationship between long-term behavior and long-term virility. The mere presence of testosterone in the bloodstream is not the only marker of maleness nor competitive edge. Dr. Ryan coined the term the virility triad for the three markers of maleness in a given person. In order of variability, they are serum testosterone, which is the amount of testosterone in your blood, androgen receptors, which are the receivers of testosterone, and finally, prenatal testosterone exposure. That's the amount of testosterone in your mother's amniotic fluid during pregnancy. The first two, as we've noted earlier, can change. Serum testosterone can change moment to moment if you say, win a challenge or see a, an attractive potential mate. Angina receptors can grow or atrophy based on the mid to long-term presence of testosterone. But that third factor, prenatal testosterone exposure, is by definition decided at birth. And certain aspects of masculinity, including that of competition, are greatly affected by it. The most accurate way to estimate prenatal testosterone exposure is through anogenital distance. That's the distance between your anus and the beginning of your genitals. Anyone who has seen both male and female anatomy should be aware that female genitals are a little lower and set back, presumably to allow copulation from the rear, as our quadruped ancestors did it. Male genitalia is more forward for the same ergonomic purposes. The perineum area can be twice as long in men as in women. The longer the anus to genital distance, the more prenatal testosterone you were likely exposed to. But before you go measuring your crotch, there is another way, an easier way, to estimate prenatal exposure. That is the 2D to 4D ratio, the ratio of your second digit, your index finger, to your fourth digit, your ring finger. The lower the ratio, or longer your ring finger, the more testosterone you are likely exposed to in utero. This 2D to 4D ratio can predict various traits in humans. Women with lower than average ratios, meaning longer ring fingers, are more likely to be lesbians and more likely to demonstrate traits associated with masculinity. Men with lower ratios have higher levels of aggression, higher sperm counts, have a greater interest in sports, and are more likely to be on the autism spectrum. 
A study by Coates on day traders showed that the highest earners had the lowest 2D to 4D ratios. Actually, ring finger length is a better indicator of success as a stockbroker than education or years of experience. This can be a kind of an upsetting fact for many, as it suggests that some things are determined at birth. But just like serum testosterone, prenatal testosterone is a double-edged sword. Low 2D to 4D ratio is also a better indicator of becoming a violent criminal than age or race. Studies done on criminals convicted of rape and murder have found that significantly lower 2D to 4D ratios than the population. So we have to note that these correlations between virility and behavior by themselves do not have moral implications. All this tells us is that biologically, virile men are going to take risks. Whether those risks are constructive or destructive depends on environment and conditioning. As a steroid hormone, testosterone affects structural development throughout the body. This also includes the brain. Differences in prenatal testosterone exposure accounts for what some call the male versus female brain. Most of what's known about the neurological differences between males and females comes from Simon Baron Cohen of the University of Cambridge. You may recognize that last name. Simon is the cousin of Sasha Baron Cohen, Borat. Simon Baron Cohen originated the extreme male brain theory, which states that autism and Asperger's syndrome are the result of higher than average fetal testosterone exposure. This theory was developed off of his earlier empathizing systemizing theory, which categorizes people based on their empathy quotient, EQ, and systemizing quotient, SQ, into five types. Type E is where EQ is higher than SQ. Type S is where SQ is higher than EQ. Type B is balanced, where they're roughly equal. And then there's extreme E, where EQ is greatly greater than SQ, or extreme S, where SQ is greatly greater than EQ. Studies have found that men are twice as likely as women to be type S, and women are twice as likely to be type E. And 65% of people on the autism spectrum are extreme type S, extreme systemizers. Prenatal testosterone exposure has been positively correlated with type S and negatively correlated with type E. Baron Cohen found a negative correlation between prenatal testosterone exposure and how much eye contact a male baby makes on his first birthday. High systemizing behavior, high SQ, has also been correlated with what's known as restricted interest. Those on the spectrum have been known to have more intensely focused interests than those not on the spectrum. In general, those high in virility indicators are more likely to become obsessed with singular pursuits. This is an idea that we'll return to when we speak about some of the great conquerors of history. Baron Cohen found that fathers and grandfathers of those on the spectrum were twice as likely to be engineers than the general population, which of course are high systemizing jobs. Another study referred to as the Silicon Valley phenomenon found that autism rates are 10 times higher amongst children of those in tech fields. Some social theorists have also hypothesized that females have a neurodefense mechanism against autism through faster social development. Baron Cohen also conducted a number of studies to estimate social cognition that was known as the Reading the Mind and the Eyes Test, or RMET. These tests measured the accuracy in which one could identify emotions via images in people's eyes, an indicator of high EQ. Consistent with previous conclusions, prenatal testosterone exposure negatively correlates with empathy, being able to read the mind and the eyes. And the same correlation was found on the other end of virility, testosterone levels in the blood. Studies that measured RMET scores before and after administered testosterone showed that women given testosterone actually scored second worst on the RMET after men given testosterone. 
Baron Cohen's conclusions have been criticized as neurosexism by some feminists, but qualitatively, it does seem consistent with everything we've seen through our evolutionary timeline. Systemizing and low empathy would be advantageous to members of a sex that must compete for mates through fighting, hunting, and building. Whereas high empathy would be advantageous for the sex that gets pregnant and therefore more able to affect social ties. Consistent through biology, we find a yin-yang trade-off between cooperative and competitive skill sets. And competition is ultimately male. What's important to understand is that male traits and behaviors cannot be categorized as good nor bad, independent of context. Maleness is what it is. To really understand what it is, we need to observe it independent of moral judgment. We'll cover the creation of subjective morality in later episodes. The goal of this episode has been to just demonstrate the objective roots of biological maleness and male behavior. As we've seen through our timeline, male organisms typically have more to gain from winning and more to lose from losing than female or asexual organisms. And the greater the exposure to competition, the greater the male traits as marked by the virility triad. Blood testosterone, antigen receptors, and prenatal testosterone exposure. But that's just our nature. Unlike all the other creatures we've mentioned so far, we homo sapiens are able to act independently of our nature. We can choose to take on behaviors that go against our genetic predispositions, and we can consciously modify our behaviors at speeds many times faster than the mutations of genetic evolution. We call these non-genetic behaviors our culture. Just as nature evolves through natural selection of genes, human culture evolves through the fundamental unit that we call memes. Throughout the rest of our series, we will continue our timeline to follow the evolution of the memes that have defined the expression of maleness in human culture that we call masculinity. Just as biological maleness, cultural masculinity has been most greatly shaped by competition, specifically the most extreme form of male-male competition, war. In our first season, we'll observe how the history of masculinity is fundamentally a history of violence. We'll move from competition of sperm to competition of steel. We'll explore how violent men have shaped the world from the Stone Age up until modern day. Stay tuned for episode one, Sticks and Stones, Prehistoric Violence and the Birth of the Warrior Ethos. (laughs) 